This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Edward Espy Brown. Edward Espy Brown was the first head cook at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center and later helped found Green's Restaurant in San Francisco. He's the author of several best-selling books, including the Tassajara Bread Book and the subject of the 2007 film, How to Cook Your Life. With Sounds True, Ed has written a new book called No Recipe, Cooking a Spiritual Practice. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Ed and I spoke about the Zen teaching to feel your way along in the dark, both in the kitchen and on the spiritual path, and how embodiment is what is needed for this type of sensitivity and feeling. We also talked about how to work with difficult emotions in the kitchen, such as anger and sadness, and how they can be embraced and included and can even energize and sensitize our cooking. We talked about making food as an offering, empowering our hands to function as alive and awake hands, and the role of sincerity and wholeheartedness, both in cooking and on the spiritual path. And finally, we talked about aiming for our true heart's desire and how that is actually the central theme in Ed's new book, No Recipe. Here's my conversation with Edward S.B. Brown. Ed, your new book is called No Recipe. And I was talking to some of the people in our publicity department here at Sounds True, and they said, yeah, you know, people love this new book, but they miss having the recipes, even though the book is called <laughs> No Recipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, I may try to remedy that in the future, but we'll see. Well, I wanted to begin with this concept of no recipe, because I think people, they want to know not just when it comes to cooking, but when it comes to our spiritual path, our spiritual journey, yeah. that if I do you want this, a recipe. yeah, if I do this and I do that, it's going to turn out all right, right? And it's going to turn out all right, right? Yeah. Question mark. And I'm, huh? And I'm trying to say, not nece- it's not necessarily so, or which is close to the title of you know my teacher's book, which I edited. Um, not always so. Um, and it's a book of Suzuki lectures. Um, and you know, no recipe though, of course, doesn't mean that there you you know you shouldn't use any recipes. It just means that finally, or in the long run, it's up to you to figure out how to live your life. And if nothing else, which recipe to use? <laughs> you have a quote I, in the book: "Zen is like feeling your way along in the dark." And I, yeah, I, I love that quote. Yeah. 
And it seems that in a way, no recipe, I know the book has been uh, many years in the making, that you're really trying to say a very mature discovery, both about <laughs> cooking and about about the spiritual journey, that at, at the end of yeah. the day, you can't cook someone else's meal or live someone else's spiritual path. So tell me more about why this idea is so important to you, the idea of no recipe. Well, uh, if nothing else, um, uh, like most of us, and you know, probably all of us, you know, I spent a good number of years trying to follow the recipe and get things to come out the way they should, or the way I wanted them to. And uh, presumably, I was following recipes that would help me do that. And um, um, you know, that was a very important. Uh, at Tassahara, we had a sashin one time, and that was the Suzuki Roshi's theme for the week of our intensive meditation uh, that uh, Zen is feeling your way along in the dark. And he would sit there and reach at his hand and feel the air in front of him. <laughs> it was very charming. And um, and he said, uh, if you, you might think it would be better to know where you're going and how to get there but usually when you know where to go and how to get there, you want, you're in a hurry and you're not so sensitive. So you, you want things to get out of your way or to assist you more than they're assisting you and to help you get to your destination. Um, and he said, um, but when you don't know where you're going and how to get there, then you become, you have to be very sensitive. And it's more important to be sensitive to what you bump into than it is to get to some destination or goal. Um, this, at least in a, I mean, that's it, a spiritual sense, but it also applies to cooking because finally you, what you end up with is not necessarily your picture or the, or the picture of the person, people presenting the recipe. Um, so, and, of course, after that, I, I I still tried to get to where I was going, <laughs> and I couldn't do it. Uh, so I, you know, in in all of my failures since then, I keep coming back. Okay, back to feeling your way along in the dark, and my life has been like that. I I don't I don't have a Zen center. I n- it never occurred to me. Like I, it's not that it never occurred to me. It just well, why don't I start a Zen center? Why don't I start a cooking school? Why don't I... And I've never had the... the, the I don't know if it's a lack of vision, a lack of imagination, uh, you know, being rather rational and and um, and know better, or, you know, I, I don't know, but all I know to do is feel my way along in the dark, and that, that's all I know to do. So um, at this point... Uh, so I, 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 I go on, and... Every so often, I'm, I'm helped out by other Zen teachers who, one of my favorite Jaku-san said, awkward in a hundred ways, clumsy in a thousand, still, I go on. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's just such a big emphasis in our culture on being masterful and accomplished and better than the others. And, and then how are you going to have friends? <laughs> I mean, who, who, who's going to be your friends then? You're, then you're you're going to be the Lord and Master. But who's who? Who do you have for your friends? I mean, your pets or something. Um. Anyway. 
<clears throat> One of the interesting comments you make in No Recipe has to do with how we practice mindfulness in the kitchen. And uh -huh. you draw some interesting cautionary notes. You say, as often practice, mindfulness in the kitchen can be a hindrance. And you go on to say that it can eliminate playfulness or spontaneity. It's almost like some people are turning to mindfulness, and I'd love to hear you talk more about this, as a way that they're going to have their recipe. They're going to just do everything. Yeah, it becomes, right it, like be, this. it becomes a recipe, and they're going to be. But the, the problem with mindful is that, I mean, you could be mindful of being angry. You could be mindful of, of, of uh, being inconsiderate. You could be mindful of being of leaving a mess behind. But if you leave a mess behind in the kitchen, then people say, oh, he wasn't being mindful, she wasn't being mindful. They don't say, oh, you know, gosh, they may have noticed they weren't cleaning up after themselves. <laughs> and God said and kept going. <laughs> so it, 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 seem, it seems to me that mindfulness has come to be another way of saying what's right and what's wrong and using it in place of, because Buddhists aren't supposed to say good and bad, right and wrong, mindfulness becomes a way to say, if they're being mindful, they did it right the way I want them to. And if they weren't being mindful, then they say, oh, they weren't being mindful. They didn't do what they were supposed to or what I wanted them to. So it, it and then people use that it, that way in their own lives too. Um, rather than just acknowledging, oh, I didn't clean up after myself. Okay, I can go back and do that. Or whatever it is, or, gosh, I'm going to think about how I express myself. I got a little too upset there, or whatever it is. You could you could look at that and acknowledge it without without making it good and bad, without making it... So anyway, there's a... It's not that mindfulness... Mindfulness is a great tool to be aware without judging good and bad, right and wrong, but it seems to be very easy, at least for some stage of practice, for people to use it as yet another way to judge good and bad, right and wrong, and just call it mindful, being mindful or not being mindful. So, Ed, if yes. a traditional approach to mindfulness as I'm going to do this right and I'm going to, uh, you know, breathe quietly while I'm chopping the vegetables, if that, yeah. if that has value but can also be limiting in some ways, and if recipes yeah. have value but can also be limiting in some ways, what are the orienting principles that yeah. work for you? Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I feel fortunate to have started with, uh, you know, with Suzuki Roshi at Tassahara. I mean, and I've been practicing Zen for a couple of years, and it's kind of a fluke, but here I was, 21 years old, and, and asked to be the head cook for Tassahara. And with I'd had three months of experience cooking. <laughs> and um uh, uh the first thing that happened was uh I was I, I came into the kitchen at Tassahara and there were all these people who were already there, had been there for a while, and they said, Oh here at Tassahara we don't use salt. I said, you, what? Huh? You don't use salt? And I said, no, salt is bad for you. I said, really? And how is it bad for you? Well, you know, um, people who are spiritually oriented are often also not interested in the details of the concept, but that they latch on to concepts. And in that case, salt was bad for you. 
Of course, the whole contingent then in macrobiotics came in and who said salt is good for you. Uh, much better than sugar. So, okay. But um, in the meantime, I didn't know what to do. How, how am I going to cook without using salt? So, and I didn't want to, I'm not very argumentative and um, and I'm not very bossy um, in certain ways. Uh, in other ways, um, I can be bossy. But I didn't know what to say, so I asked Suzuki Roshi, what am I going to do? They tell me I can't use salt in the kitchen, and he told me, you're the cook. And that was a good place to start. You're the cook, so you do what you want. And other people say, well, we like that, we don't like that, that's not the way to do it. And you you keep deciding for yourself what what to do. You're the cook. When you're in your house, if you come to my class or something, yeah, you go along with me and you maybe learn something or you don't. You go home and you keep doing what you did or you try you do something that you learned in the class or you find out something for yourself and life goes on. Uh, so that was a uh, very empowering uh, to to realize I'm in, you know in that position I'm in charge I'm I get to decide and that has the drawback of having to feel your way along in the dark <laughs> and not really know what the answer is but in the meantime have to do something anyway uh, the other thing that Suzuki Rishi's told me which was which uh, very much stayed with me and of course it's in the book is when you wash the rice, wash the rice. When you cut the carrots, cut the carrots. When you stir the soup, stir the soup. So that's that's a basic Zen. Do what you're doing. And and um, and at times, depending on who the Zen person is, you know, throw yourself into it. Burn yourself completely. Um, and the, the the there's a big to me. There's a difference between that and then you know trying to be mindful. Um, I, I put somewhere in the in the book about the story of my friend Gil Fransdale, who practiced sand for a month and then went to Southeast Asia and studied Vipassana. And he's now become primarily a Vipassana teacher, although he's also recognized as a Zen master. Um, he said in Japan, they say when you rake, just rake. Similar, you know, same idea. And in Southeast Asia, they say when you rake, watch your mind. So in Japan, they're out there raking, and it's energetic and lively, and they're, maybe they're stirring up dust. And um, and in Southeast Asia, they have the rake in their hand, and they just stand there. <laughs> so my idea is, when you're you're cooking, you cook, and uh, and yeah, be mindful. But but if you focus on that, you may find that you're not putting as much of your body and mind into the activity. And studying and observing as closely as you can what's happening and how things are coming out and um, being alert to whether things are cooked enough or not cooked enough or the temperatures and all the rest of it. Um, so I like the I like the, the Zen approach. The um, and the washing your rice. The rice, by the way, we were using at times Japanese white rice, which you had to wash five, six, seven times to get the. I don't remember what it was, talc or something. They 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 put the rice in to keep it from getting infested. Or, so you'd had to, you had to wash it and wash it. Um, you know, Ed, one of the things you said that got my attention, throw yourself completely into it. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, 
partly that's uh, that's a business of incarnating yes. and 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 entering into your body and finding your hands, finding your feet, finding your pelvis, finding your back, and um, and so much of the time, and most of us have grown up, and we're we're not particularly embodied. We're in our heads. So this is another way in Zen of not just meditating, but when you do something, see if study being in your body, doing something with your body, with your arms, with your hands, with your legs. I mean, even even back in the day at Tessar in the 60s, there were people who showed up there who did not know how to sweep. And it's only gotten worse. Mm-hmm. My partner, Margo, teaches at a... Uh, used to teach at her own uh, with two friends. They had their own school, and they they had the they taught the kids to sweep and to clean the bathrooms. And that was part of school. It was called the real school. <laughs> so, along with their strong academics, they had um, these kids who came from wealthy families who only had maids had to learn how to clean house. Um, and there's just so much of it. It's I don't know. It's just very mysterious. Things are supposed to just happen, and you you don't. You, and 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 using your body to do things has kind of gotten is lower class, um, or something. You know, I don't know. It it somehow fell out way out of favor, and the whole business of getting a college education and everything um, seems to have taken over, and you know everything is by the head. Um, and and that's and that and that that brings you back to the recipe business because then the idea of how to live a life is get the best directions and follow them. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, it was a bad recipe. Not and or I have too much resistance. And um, it's not finding out for yourself what to do. It's it's oh, I guess I need some different instructions to you know, send down to my body and mind to, you know, to impose on myself as to what to follow rather than how do I have some life in my body and find out what information and, uh, you know, sensitivities and so on that it has to share. So let's get more specific, Ed. Someone is going to go into their kitchen and they want to approach it in a very embodied way instead of just okay, I have this clipped out recipe and I'm going to follow it in a technical way. What kinds of ways will they tune in to their body so that they're coming from the inside out in the darkness with sensitivity to their experience? Well, you know, I, I, you know, we start wherever you start, but I start with emptying out the dish drainer and clearing the sink so that anything that comes along, I have a place to wash it, a place to put it, and, you know, that, that all of that process is going on, so I'm not even, but what you're talking about is, like, w- when you go to cut something, I mean, let's say you have a decent knife, but people think there's a way to cut, and then they go to cut that way, rather than, I could try cutting it like this, and I could try cutting it like that, and one of the first things that occurred to me is, rather than most people, when they first go to cut something in the kitchen, Move the knife up and down, up and down, and instead of back and forth, back and forth. And I thought, well, why don't I move the knife back and forth? Because that's sawing rather than chiseling. And 
and then and then you're asking your hands, which feels better to you, which works better for you, and you're trying to get beyond what your hands say. That's awkward. That's uh, you know that's not something I'm familiar with, and there, and you're trying to look at what's truly awkward as opposed to easy, and what's just unfamiliar as opposed to familiar. And you want to identify what's actually easy, easier for your body to do. How do you stand? How do you hold your, where do you, where are your hands? What's the level of your, you know, sometimes your counter's too low. And then you, you need to see if you can get a, a bigger cutting block or put down a, a box on the counter and put the block of wood on top of that and so that you have a higher counter. Or if you, if the counter's too high, you want to find something to stand on. And so you're, I think people are, you know, people often are giving up before they even make these kind of adjustments. Oh, it's awkward to work in the kitchen. The counter's too low. The counter's too high. I, I don't want to do that. Um, so, uh, and then when you're when you're cooking, I I keep coming back to taste what you put in your mouth. Um, and over many years, I've more and more been tasting what I what I and finding out from my experience what, what things taste like. Why is there salt in things? Well, make it without the salt and then make it with the salt and see what the difference is. And that's what I do in my cooking classes is, like recently we did, a, among other things, we did the kale salad, which actually is in the book. And in 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 disguise, that's a recipe, right? Because it's, it's the kale salad. My neighbor and I are making a fresh kale salad. And we, we cut up the kale She'd already cut up the kale, and then we put salt on, and then we do what's called hand frying. You squeeze it with your hands. It's an old macrobiotic technique, among other things. And the salt brings water out of the kale, and the salt goes into the kale. The water comes out, and there's a shift in the flavor. And I call that the flavor comes into focus. It was a nice flavor before. It's decent. It's fresh. It's grassy. And now it's like, oh, this is kale. <laughs> and, oh, there's spring blossoms, too. And there's there's green onion. And there's, you know, so you, you start to taste things. And then the other thing about the salt is when it goes in with the kale, then the water coming out means the kale's easier to chew. Why not have kale that's easier to chew? I don't know. My mouth gets tired chewing on some of these raw salads. So, anyway, um, you... You get the information from your hands. Uh, you see with your eyes. I use that quote from Tenke, the Zen, Zen Master Tenke. See with your eyes. Smell with your nose. Taste with your tongue. Nothing in the universe is hidden. What else would you have me say? And usually we say, well, I, how do I get it to come out the way I want? Rather than, oh, I get it. I could be experiencing things closely enough to know for myself what I like and what I want to do. And... And what else? And then, and that's, and that's in a sense feeling your way along in the dark. <laughs> you, you, you find out something, you get some information, and then you act on that, rather than is this matching what the recipe says? Um, it's amazing to me. It's just amazing. You know, we tried Deborah and I. I worked up Deborah on the Green Cookbook, and Deborah and I wrote all these things like cook the onions until they're translucent and seasoned to taste with vinegar. And we got back, at that time, it was all pink press-apply labels sticking up the right side of the manuscript, and there were dozens of them. 
And many of them said, uh, uh, cook the onions until they're translucent. How long? Season the taste with vinegar. How much? Right. And, um, and then in the, in the pasta section, there was a recipe that said, cook the vegetables until they're as tender as you like. How do we know? Well, if you don't know what you like, and, it's, and somehow the editor fiercely and strongly believed there is a way this should come out, and you should follow what the experts tell you, and Deborah and Ed are the experts here, and they're going to tell you uh, how to do it so it comes out the way it's supposed to, so it comes out right. And I, I wrote a two-page preface or something to that book that said, no, we're, we're in the business of learning how to cook, and to which means to be aware of your own aesthetic and more and more be aware of your own aesthetic and then and and let that come into play in in finding out what to do along with the information you're receiving you also have an aesthetic cook the onions until they're translucent and so you can watch the onions going from white to more glassy and so on you can um so we changed it, you know, season, cook the onion until the translucent, about two to four minutes, season the taste of vinegar, starting with half a teaspoon, and so on. You know, we had to keep putting in these little clues so that you didn't just pour in a half a cup of vinegar. Um. <laughs> what do you think, Ed, is the inner quality that allows somebody to have confidence in their own sense experience versus, no, I just don't, I, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if they're... You know, well, I don't know life. either. Um. <laughs> right, but you, at a certain point, you came to trust your own aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think you I think that's what is necessary is that you you try something out, that you do it enough that you begin to you begin to know that you have that you can trust yourself. Um, and um, you know, I started with vegetables, and eventually, I've I've worked up. You know how to maybe do this with people. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, I'll tell you something, something I'm supposed to say here. No, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, Ed, something I have trouble with. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. So I actually love to cook. I love to cook. And when I go on a, a solitary retreat or I just cook for myself, I make it exactly the way I like it, and I just love yeah. it. And I have these moments of like, oh, my God, I just love this. I love my own yeah. cooking. Okay. But when yeah. I cook for other people, that's when I, I get all fishtumled, to use a technical term, because I know that other people, oh, Tammy likes too much salt. She likes things too spicy. She likes things too oily. Whatever other people, too much butter. Yeah. So then I start getting all confused about yeah. how am I going to find a way that's going to please the people I'm cooking Everybody. for. Everybody. And myself. Everybody throughout time and history. Yeah. And then it's going to have to be really bland, honey. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, that's part of what happened to me is that at some point I I realized, oh, my God, I cannot please everybody. Um, I probably wrote about this in the book, but, you know, we, I, we used to make oatmeal. Um, we had a different breakfast cereal each day, oatmeal and ground and um, cracked rice and cracked wheat and cornmeal and whatever. So... Um, but the oatmeal especially somehow was a, and in those days, people didn't know any better. We were just starting out and the administration didn't know any better and people would just walk into the kitchen after a meal and say, that oatmeal was too thick. 
Oh, uh-huh, really? Yeah, don't you know that in the morning your digestion is really weak and you, you need to have something easy to digest and, you know, really well cooked and uh, so that you can just slide down your throat and then just, and it nourishes you. So I tried making some oatmeal like that, really well cooked and really soft. And then another group of people came into the kitchen. This is the men who have been working outside digging a septic tank by hand, you know, that's 20 foot square and 12 feet deep or whatever it is. And there's rocks and, and they're working at this, you know, six hours a day or something. And they say, we're not getting any meat. At least we could have some oatmeal that you could chew. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So there's a problem. And then I thought, well, just to be on the safe side here, setting aside too thin or too thick, I'll put raisins in. And then a third group of people came in, the macrobiotics who said, why are you poisoning us? Didn't you know that <laughs> that raisins are poisonous? Um, you know, they were, and they, they, they were so fierce about their beliefs and their understanding about what you should and shouldn't be eating. And of course, I joke about that because if you ate what you were supposed to eat on the diet, you would be calm and peaceful. And if you didn't, you might get angry like this. Why are you poisoning us? <laughs> anyway, um, so at some point I'm like, okay, I, I'm I'm going to have to just offer what I have to offer. Listen to what people have to say, and if and then see what I think. Uh, you know, I've got it. I don't have it. Um, and it depends. You know, in the meditation hall, you're sort of stuck because you, people are being just served what you're what you're cooking in Zen. Uh, in Vipassana, you go through the buffet line and take what you want. Um, and I don't know about Tibetan exactly. I think they're well. I guess they do both. Um, For our listeners, Ed, who might not be following, there, can you explain what you mean? In oh, in Zen, uh, we have meals in the, in the in practice period times. So we we eat. We have meals in the Zendo. We have a set of eating bowls called, called an orioki, which has also cloth. It has a lap napkin. It has a cloth, a tablecloth. It has a drying cloth. And part of the meal ceremony is to you serve food in the Zendo, and then after the food is eaten, you clean your bowls with water that's served, and then you put them all away and wash them, dry them, put them away. It's all part of the the meal ceremony. Uh, and so when you're eating in the meditation hall, you you are obliged to just receive what's offered. And for the Zen people, that goes back to the original Buddhism of when you go out begging for food, which the early Buddhists did and Buddhists have done for centuries and sometimes still do, when you uh, are begging for food, you do not say, I want that, I don't want that. Um, you, you're not picking and choosing, you receive what's offered. And then you go back to the temple, and the food is divided up, and you so you end up eating uh, what you're offered. And in Zen, we say take some of each bowl and eat what's offered. Um, so, uh, but in Vipassana, oh, and you know, and then of course now it's just gotten way, way, way more complicated since I was cooking at Tassar in the '60s, because uh, now there's way more food allergies and sensitivities and people going to the hospital and they can't have garlic, they can't have beets, they can't have uh, tomatoes, uh, bell peppers, uh, eggs. Um, you know, there's a lengthy list of... So now you have to publish ahead of time your menus and if it's in. In Vipassana, partly they can they don't have to worry about that so much because then there's, there's, always, there's various dishes and it's in a buffet line and you go through the buffet line and you take what you 
know you can eat, and the ingredients are often listed right there by the dish that's being served, so that you only are going to take what you what you what you want, and you know what you can what your stomach and your digestive system can manage. It is, by the way, said colloquially, which you know I don't I haven't looked in detail, but obviously in the early days, uh, stomach ailments were were part of being a Buddhist monk because you went out begging for your food, <laughs> and, it, and and of course the the story is that the Buddha died of eating infected pork, um, and that he knew that it was infected, but he didn't want that he felt he should eat it anyway um, because it had been offered to him. You know, I don't know the details of these things, but he was, and he was 80 or something, and so he, maybe it was about time anyway. Uh, and, you know, one doesn't know about these stories, what, how much truth is there is to them, or if it's part of the myth, etc. But um, in Zen, we eat what's served, and in Vipassana, you can go through the line and, and pick what you want. So, um, anyway, I learned that, you know, for Zen, you just, I'm going to do something, and it's just my offering. And it's just the way I'm doing it today, and some people are going to like it, and some people aren't. And I can't, there's no way to do it so that everybody loves it and says, great. And at some point, yeah, you can say, well, too many people don't want it this spicy. Um, I'll have to. See, and if you're in Vipassana, you can have your dish of salsa out on the table to add for people to add to it. So in Zen, you might not have it as hot or spicy as you want it as the cook, but you're you're kind of aiming for some middle ground or mm-hmm. something distinctive, but not you know too plain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. But I think over the years, what's happened is that um, oftentimes people end up making bland food because they don't want to hear from anybody about anything. Right. Right. Oh. Oh well. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Ed, here's something I want to talk to you about in the book that I thought was seemingly paradoxical. At at one point, you write, food tastes better when the cook is joyful. And I thought, that's true. That's true. And then at another point, you write, if I were to cook only when I was feeling the most loving, kind, and benevolent, I would have starved long ago. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's true, too. So yeah. how do we approach cooking when we're in a foul mood? <laughs> how do we approach cooking when we're in a foul mood? Um, somewhat carefully, <laughs> somewhat awkwardly. Um, uh, and again, feeling your way along in the dark, so you're going slowly. Um, and... You know, I, I I found that with most anything, 
and I, I noticed this pretty early on, you know, that you've got to give yourself about 10 minutes anyway. If I went out jogging, the first time I thought, what am I doing? This is stupid. I hate this. And after about 10 minutes, I no, not bad. <laughs> and if you're washing dishes, oh gosh, the dishes again. If you're cooking, if you're sitting, if you're doing meditation, first 10 minutes, you're like, I can't believe I decided to do this. You know, I can't, you know, what am I, I got other things to do. I've got some stuff to take care of. And so you need to be somewhat patient there at the beginning of the process to say, okay, I'm going to give, I'm going to give myself 10 minutes or 15 minutes to see if I can settle down on this and find my way into the activity, uh, into the, into the work, into the, study the practice and um, see what happens um, and it did help me too to um, again it, it helps to not be too ambitious certainly you know at some point it's like okay well I'm going to do what I can do here um, and I'm not in some fancy restaurant I'm not under a lot of pressure Um I'll offer what I have to offer um, under all the circumstances, the food, the ingredients, the time, the energy, the attitude, the circumstances I'm working with. So it's it's kind of an extension of uh, Dogen's teaching, you know, use, uh, receive the ingredients that, are, that you have and work with them sincerely and wholeheartedly. So it's different to handle your emotions with sincerity and wholeheartedness and because the usual attitude with emotions is I don't want to have anything to do with you and if I'm going to cook you need you can't be here so mm-hmm. that, that's that that to me was so it's impossible and I I say you know come along you know see what you can do to help out help me out here uh, you're welcome to participate in the cooking I'm not going to be going off with you to scream or hit pillows or to cry or sob or, you know, whatever you think might be the appropriate activity. We're, we're going to, it's all going to come now to the kitchen and we're going to see what we all can do together and uh, to, to, to have a meal come out, to have the food come out. So there's an important shift there from wanting to get rid of the emotions to, it's not the emotions themselves that are problematic, it's the attachment to a fixed expression of them that's the problem. So when there's, when you once you let go of the fixed expression, then you realize the, the emotions are perfectly capable of helping out in the kitchen. Can, can, you, give me <laughs> you, an, can never, you give me an example of that? How, how... You just never invited them before. <laughs> okay, so give, so give me an example. Let's just say somebody's angry about something yeah. that's happening in the You're world. You're angry about something, I, and then... I listened to the news yeah. on the way home, and I got all riled up, and now I'm yeah. going to cook dinner. Okay, how, yeah. how is my emotion going to help me? Well, we're going to ask it to come into the kitchen with us and and um, participate. So, uh, and it's it's also related then to um, throw yourself into it, do what you're doing, uh, and and anger is very fierce about that. Um, can be very fierce about that. You you wash what needs to be washed, and the anger can can do that, and it can certainly help with cutting. It loves to cut. <laughs> Whack, whack, whack! But you're not just whacking. You know, you're you're 
you're training it, you're retraining your anger or re you know, inviting your anger to participate with you. When anger is more angry when you don't want to allow it any space and you're trying to get rid of it, then it can explode. Um, but if you're using it, then it's it's really capable. Um, and I found at times, um, you know, with anger, you know, a huge rush of energy. Um, when I invited, I know you don't, you know, like you're angry. Well, I invite you to, you know, let's do something here. And, 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 and then the anger is more like that. Um, throw yourself into it, including the anger. And then pretty soon it's not angry anymore because it, it has, it's able to participate in your life. So the anger isn't just anger. It's your, it's, your, it's something closer to the fundamental energy of your being. Um, and you're, and then you're able to use that fundamental energy to to cook rather than just to be captivated by the emotion and the usual way of expressing it. Uh, that actually there are other possibilities. It doesn't mean that you don't want to go back later and tell somebody what you have to tell them or set different boundaries or whatever you're going to do. Um, I've mostly found though after years and years of misplacing mis mis what is that? Of not expressing my, uh, of expressing my uh, anger uh, a little too um, provocatively or openly, uh, people don't get it. You think that you can be when you're angry, they'll they'll hear what you have to say, but they don't hear anything that you're saying. All they hear is that, oh, you're angry, aren't you? They don't hear like, clean up after yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, stop talking, don't talk in the kitchen. They're, oh, you were really angry. They don't hear like, oh, excuse me, I was talking um, when you wanted us to be quiet and it was interrupting the work. They don't hear that. So I've, I keep studying, you know, how to express things without actually expressing the anger. So, But that doesn't mean not to to be firm or clear. Uh, and anger helps with that. Anger helps with that firm determination, persistence, clarity. Um, no, uh, when you yeah. when you ask it to help, when you have to ask it to help. How, how could our sadness help us? Just to use a different example. Yeah. Well, I I found that you know I'm I'm kind of in that Robert Bly school of sadness. What is sadness for? It's a storehouse of barley, corn, wheat, and tears. One steps to the door and around stone. A round stone in the storehouse feeds all the birds of sorrow. Do you know that poem? I don't know. <laughs> and I say to myself, will you have sorrow at last? Oh, go ahead, be stoic in the autumn, be tranquil and calm, or in the valley of sorrow, spread your wings. <laughs> so I found uh, that sadness um, uh, really connects me with things. And Bly says that same thing. You know, how can I be close to you if I'm not sad? I mean, that's Bly for you, partly. But also, you know, the sadness is, is starts to reach out for connection. And then pretty soon you can be, you know, you can be connected with the food you're working with, with the, with the utensils, with the activity, with doing the dishes. And you start to see things that you, you weren't seeing before because you were busy getting something done. And you had, you didn't have time for sadness. So in our, in our, you know, in our haste to be uh, being busy and, and getting things done, we, we don't have time for sadness. 
it, it's, it slows us down, but the slowing down is also how we become more intimate and more connected with things. But again, it's like uh, you're, you're inviting sadness to reveal more about what's, what's really beneath the surface than just, oh, sadness, and how do I get over this or, you know, through this or... And, I mean, I've studied a lot of things over the years, I'm afraid. <laughs> I tell people I'm a work in progress, you know. Um, so there's there's many, many skills and things to learn, certainly. And But that's what I would say about sadness in the kitchen is that I, I started to feel, and recently I was reminded of, um, I started to feel connection. And recently I was remembering the teapots at Tassara, how to Cook Your Life, Dora Stories movie. At the, it, the, really, the, the finale of the movie is kind of the um, where I'm. There are these dented, there these uh, dented golden-colored teapots. It's, it's actually kind of aluminum that's kind of somewhat gold-colored, um, uh, a kind of pale yellow, and uh, they were all dented from people. The way that people carried them and banged them into each other and. In Zen, you're supposed to carry one thing with two hands, but people would carry two teapots in one hand and two teapots in the other, and then you got to your break center. I mean, who cares about practicing Zen and, and taking care of something or honoring something when you can get a break center? So sometimes people would carry four teapots in one hand and then, you know, and race across someplace. And So the teapots were all banged up. And then when they were washed, they would sit on this particular shelf, the teapot shelf, and I would look at those dented teapots and they seem so bright and cheery. And I'm here I am, all sad and tired and um, anxious or lonely and whatever. And, and I'd see those teapots, and they looked so round and ample and cheery and bright. And they were ready to, you know, to be of service. And then I would just, my feeling would go out to them, oh, you sweethearts, you know, if you can do this, I can too. So you're much more, that's the sadness, you're much more in connection with some, with things and realizing how hard it is for everything in our life, in, in this world. Nothing nothing gets through unscathed, whether it's the teapots or, you know, and, and what gets valued, you know, it's, it's, and so many things are lost. We don't value our, we don't value our anger, our sadness, our, our energy, our, our, you know, our intuition, our imagination. It's just get it done, you know. And at some point, that's, of course, use it up, you know, wear it out, <laughs> make do, do without. Um, it's That's an old New England saying. <laughs> but, um, you know, Zen says, well, let's value something. Let's start by, let's let's value this moment, which is valuing the things and valuing your your effort, your sincerity, your wholeheartedness, and... And be awake and alive yourself, and then and put that awakeness and aliveness. Give that to the things to to bring them alive, and to the food to bring it alive. You know, I notice Ed when you talk about sincerity and wholeheartedness. I'm moved by that. I feel touched by that. Oh, uh, right, that's and nice. right, Thank in, you. right in my heart. And what yeah. what I would love to know is what in your life has increased your sincerity. <sighs> And wholeheartedness. Well, um, you know, frankly, it's all the things that broke my heart. <laughs> and then when you, um, uh, and then to go on, um, 
there's sincerity and wholeheartedness. There's because uh, again, the recipes didn't work. Um, I remember this. I know I keep. I I sometimes come back to. Well, two things. Um, uh, first of all, you know, one time I was sick at Tassahara after, and we were cooking and for hours a day, and we were short-staffed, and sometimes I would work for a week, two weeks, a month without a day off, and uh, I was exhausted, and finally I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I just lay in my room. I couldn't hardly move. And I started thinking, why am I doing this? And I I, I thought, well, I, I'm, I, I want to make good food. I want... I want people to like my food. And then I thought, well, what difference does it make? And can you really tell if they like your food? They just seem to want you to keep cooking it, not that they really appreciate your effort. They just, they're not really appreciating you much. They're they're, they're bowing to receive their food, but it's kind of going through the motions. And I thought, well, why why anyway do I want them to like my food? Well, that would mean that they liked me. And then, of course, I had to distinguish between what's my performance and what's me. Do they just like the performance or do they like me? No, they don't care about me. Just keep working. And they don't care about me. So, okay, but let's say that I could get them to like me through cooking, through my performance. Why would that be important? And I realized then, oh, if enough people like me, then maybe I could like me. If I got enough evidence, you know, that I was likable, then maybe I could like myself. Because up and, and then, that's when I realized, oh, uh-oh, I guess I don't like myself very much. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I hadn't realized. And then, if you are going to go back to work after that. It's just your sincerity and wholeheartedness that is going to bring you back. It's not it's not the reward that you're going to get, which you can't get. It's not producing the evidence that people like you that then you and you can never get enough evidence from others to like yourself. You just can't. So I decided, okay, I will I will practice loving myself, somebody who is not that accomplished, is not that is not that good a performer, can't do that much. You know, I'll, I'll have to like myself and, and I will have, and the sincerity, at one point I understood, uh, of course, that sincerity goes back apparently to fr- the French. Uh, the S-I-N is like without, like sans in French, and serre is wax, so it's without wax. And the wax is what was used in statues and in people would clip parts of coins and fill in the part of the coin with wax and of course the blemishes in in, uh, in uh, metal sculptures are still filled in with wax and patinaed and you can cover up all the blemishes so that's uh, using the wax to cover the blemishes and um, at some point you're you're shifting to okay I I'm going to have to learn to appreciate the wrinkles here and the and the cracks and, you know, like Leonard Kahn, let the bells that can be rung, you know. <laughs> there's a light in everything, that's how the, that's how the, uh, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in, you know. Um, so I, I, I had to start learning to appreciate the cracks and the blemishes and, and, um, and then share that 
rather than trying to hide it and and then and not want to hear what other people's problems about my performance. I know I made a sincere offering. I I know it was sincere. It was I I I gave I gave my best. I did my best. I offered it. And it has, you know, and then the world out there, I'm not, I can't control it. So much of our suffering is trying to control how other people see us and then they don't see us that way. And then, but the point was just to, to, to begin to appreciate yourself, sincere, honest, good-hearted person, doing, making their offering, their, making their best effort. Okay. And that, that um, is part of the no recipe, of course, because so much, again, we're shifting from make a spectacular performance, do something spectacular and masterful so that everybody can, you know, offer a claim and, you know, and, and that was great. And you say, yes, it was. If it didn't come out, you say that was a lousy recipe. But if it came out all right, then you can take credit for it. Um, and at some point, like, couldn't we just cook for ourselves and our friends and our family? And, and make a sincere, good-hearted effort. Why do people keep thinking you, you have to do something masterful or don't even cook? I mean, it's crazy. No wonder people don't cook. If you, if the only, you know, the only way you are going to go into the kitchen is, and I, I can't do something masterful in the kitchen. No, you're going to have to do something less than masterful, maybe indefinitely. <laughs> this, this idea, so. Ed, of of our cooking being an offering to other yeah. people is something that moves me. There's a, a quote yeah. from the book, work itself is making your love manifest. And, right. you know, you talked about how hard it was to be the head cook at Tassajara, how much work, how much just act yeah. actual hard labor. And yeah. uh, there's another quote from the book that sacrifice is necessary to bring forth the sacred. And I think yeah. I'm just moved by that because I don't think yeah. we honor necessarily the act no. of offering that right. there is, whether no. we're doing the cooking or receiving cooking from someone yeah. else. Right. Yeah. We don't always recognize it. So more and more these days I'm saying, thank you for your effort. You know, it's not, that was great. Thank you for your effort. Thank you for, you know, your offering. Thank you for putting yourself out there in food. Um, and it's so rare that anybody does that for me anyway. Oh, we couldn't cook for you. Like, what What do they think? Right. <laughs> oh, it's gonna, oh, 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 we could just offer you food. <laughs> we, we can't offer you ma masterpieces. You might, you might not think that highly of us if we just offered you food. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, but yeah, you're, it's, um, this is part of why, you know, I finally put this book out there, whether or not people, you know, get it or receive it. Thank you for your sensitivity and understanding and appreciation because exactly, you know, um, it's, it's just these simple offerings of our life that, you know, really it, it's, it's what, you know, some people call, um, ceremony or, um, you know, it's spiritual activity. It's bringing the, it's a letting the spirit come through. And sacrifice is interesting too, because yeah, you do, you do sacrifice the chance to watch television or play video games or go out to a nice restaurant. You give up, you give up doing other things to be in the kitchen, um, and you, uh, and you're, 
you're also, in a sense, giving up control. I say you're shifting from control to compassion. You're having more compassion rather than being in control. You're, you want to control the other people and make sure their experience of your performance is worthy of their claim. And, um, and some, sometimes it's hard because, you know, your audience is like that. That's what the, that, and they and they're going to let you know if your performance was not worthy of their acclaim, and you know that that could be stressful. I've been in houses like that and families. Um, very challenging. I don't know what people do sometimes, but you know, the worst was um, an old girlfriend. Her sister was anorexic, and her husband was like that, hmm. and she finally didn't make it. You know, in her early forties. Um, but just too, way too much. Uh, uh, it was the most intense place I've ever been in my life. Way too much judgment and and um, tension in the room of uh, around. Uh, is it the way it's supposed to be? Is it the way it should be? Rather than let's enjoy, let's enjoy this food. Let's enjoy this moment. Let's enjoy our breath. Let's let's enjoy each other's company and so on. So. Good old Thich Nhat Hanh there, huh? <laughs> well, I noticed I'm, 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 you know, would love to just uh, stop what we're doing right now and uh, cook a meal together, Ed. That would be fun. Oh, that's let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, while I was reading No Recipe, I just started thinking of all of the meals I wanted to cook, all the people I wanted to yeah. offer these meals yeah. to and have over, and, and also how I was right. going to really cook for myself and just make some things that I just love. <laughs> now, I, I, I wanted, Well, what I say yeah. is, you know, one thing about that is, you know, you're cooking by your aesthetic, and then your aesthetic gets informed and shaped and reshaped by your experience as you go forward. So, you, you know, your aesthetic is not something that's fixed, which is good to know. It's, it's what you like today and the way you like it today, and then maybe next week it'll be different. What do we know? Yeah. So um, that's nice, you know. Yeah. Now, here's the note I wanted to end on, Ed, which is the note that okay. you began the book with. At oh. the very beginning of your introduction, you said, Please, honored readers, aim to fulfill your true heart's desire. I thought, huh, oh gosh, I said that? You said that. <laughs> you invited the readers. Aim to fulfill your true heart's desire. And what Good, that, that's what the book's about. I'm glad that was in there someplace. What that brought up for me was, what is your true heart's desire? Why is that so important to you? And what is your true heart's desire? Well, uh, of course, I've studied that a lot over the years. And again, that's something that keeps shifting and changing, and there is an, another chapter later in the book where I talk about some of the things that have been important to me. Uh, like, at, at one point it was, for instance, to feel at home here, in this body, in this time, in this place, on this planet, uh, which is a little bit like Raymond Carver who said, uh, somebody asked him, or at least in his writing, somebody asked him, "What? What are you? What do you hear? Uh, did you get what you wanted? You know, being here?" And he said, "Yes, I did." And what was it you wanted? And he said, "To be, to feel beloved here on on Earth." And he said, "Yes," and I felt that. So um, at one point, that was my 
And that that's still a big piece, that's to feel cool. beloved. Yeah. And that beloved doesn't come from, you know, it, it, it comes from uh, from your heart, and it comes from from above, from below, from from the east, west, you know, from the sky, from the earth. Um, but it also comes from, uh, anyway, it also comes from uh, your 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 heart. Your heart is our hearts. Uh, in Buddhism, of course, we say you know we don't want to. We want to be of benefit to others. Our heart wants to benefit. Our heart wants to not to cause harm. Um, uh, but I think that uh, feeling at home to me was extremely important, and that goes back to my own personal history, which is we don't have time for. But um, but more recently, then at some point, it became more, more, uh, much more important, and uh, uh, to feel connection, to feel in connection. Which is another way of saying to feel uh, at home here, to feel in connection and to have intimacy with myself, intimacy with things, intimacy with people, to be capable of intimacy, which is a very, again, a very interesting word. Um, I mean, I don't know the details of it, but oftentimes people think intimacy is where you you understand the things the same way with somebody else. And intimacy is where Oh, you see it like that. I see it like this, and you can feel close, even though you see things differently. You feel close, even though you f- you feel differently about something. You can still have closeness, and that's that's real intimacy. Because the the other is not intimacy. It's it's um, some kind of abandoning yourself for the other, or somebody's a, you know abandoning something so that you feel the same thing and think the same thing and like the same things, and you know. But you. So you honor something there about the, the differences in things, and you can and you and through that difference and you start and you have connection and warm-heartedness and warmth and so intimacy became more and more important to me um, and connection, along with that sense. And there's I've had various expressions as I say, but I think feeling home here at home here, and and of course in Zen then the notion is well if you want to be at home here make yourself at home. Start, you know, taking care of these things that are in your home, the ingredients, the utensils, the kitchen, the space you live in. Start start taking care of it. Start honoring it. You want to feel at home here, uh, you know, uh, weed your garden. Um, I mean, you know, there's... And I don't know. I'm, I'm not in the business of trying to, uh, you know, do much to save the world, I'm afraid. Um, I don't know that it... It can be saved, etc. But I can work on being at home here and making myself at home and taking care of things and offering what I have to offer and so on. So, um, anyway, there you have it. You know, Ed, when I when I said that you put this at the beginning of the book, honored readers aim to fulfill your true heart's desire. You said, "Oh, I'm so glad that made it into book. That's what the whole book's about." How is, how is that what's, what the whole book is about? Not having a recipe, learning to trust yourself in the kitchen, following your senses, being present. Yeah. How is that what, yeah. what the whole book is about? Yeah. Aiming to fulfill your true heart's desire. Yeah. yeah. And there's no recipe for that. Which comes up in so many ways, but there's no, 
there's recipes for how to make something come out the way it's supposed to, but there's not a recipe for having beginning to have, and it's, you know, many people talk about this, uh, whether it's therapists or psychologists or, you know, Michael Mead, Robert Bly, and, you know, all kinds of people. You know, we abandon ourselves growing up. We have to learn to fit in and, and get along here on planet Earth. Um, if we have time for it, I'll tell you a quick story about that. Okay. Do we have time? We have, we'll make well, time. Um, anyway, um, a dear friend of mine who I haven't seen now in years because I don't get back to Maine anymore, she's a healer. And I've studied something about Richard from Richard Unger about fingerprints, and by golly, she's got the marks of a healer on her hand, on her palm especially. Anyway, um, one day a woman comes in to her with this three-year-old boy, and she says, and my friend says, well, what, what are you doing? And she says, well, he's refusing to eat the food. He's refusing to speak the language. He says it's not the food or the language from where he comes from. <laughs> so how are you going to grow up here if you say that? And um, it's a kind of a strange story because then um, uh, at some point after seeing him for two or three times, she had a dream and some aliens came to her in her dream and she thought, oh, gee, what do I want with aliens? And then she thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them. And she said to the aliens, you know, I'm I'm working with this little boy, and he's refusing to eat the food or speak the language. You need to talk to him and tell him to eat the food and speak the language, or he's going to have a really, really hard time here, because he's on Earth. <laughs> and the woman called her the next morning and said, he's eating the food, he's speaking the language. <laughs> anyway, there's more to that story, but... Um, it's so interesting, you know. Anyway, we do learn when we're small. We have to how to how to speak the language, how to, and depending on our circumstances, you know. And then we, I learned certainly to how to have a pretty tough exterior to defend myself, to defend against you know more heartaches and heartbreaks, and you know, and to defend against intimacy and to defend against love because you can get hurt. And we developed this this. You know the the toughness and various things and strategies and and then how do you ever you know re own your own heart open up again to your heart? It seems like whether again whether it's therapy or the spiritual path, some big piece of that is how do I how do I receive my own heart and know what's in my own heart and how can I offer and share that? Uh, and it becomes and then if one chooses to you know it's because it's definitely a choice at that point whether it's when you're a teenager, or whether it's in your 20s, or midlife crisis, at some point you go like, you know what, I need to start living my life and 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 sharing and finding out my heart and not just being a success in these exterior terms. Because uh, that's not satisfying me and fulfilling me the way I'd, I thought it would. Uh, when And we forget how, we don't remember how we abandon ourselves and so there's a whole lot of work, whether it's in meditation or in the course of life or, you know, to begin to study what, in the vernacular, what what did I come here to do? What am I, what am I here for? Which is another way to talk about true heart's desire. And there's this, and it's, and it's not coming in words, damn it. It's not some, you know, wonderful directive from beyond. Oh, this, that. <laughs> that's like you're back in your head, you know. If it's in words, that's not your heart. Your heart is in feelings, or and it's 
Yeah, move that way. No, not you know. It's we're back to feeling your way along in the dark. Because hmm. there's no there's no obvious, and there's no way to stick to it. You know, you 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 if you have a recipe, you stick to it. If you know where you're going and how to get there, you stick to it. So without sticking to anything, how do you and feeling your way along? How do you? What's going to guide you? Well, it's your aesthetic, your and then your heart is going to is going to guide you. It's going to, and then sometimes you'll. And interestingly enough, of course, I'm in this particular Zen tradition with Suzuki Roshi, and his idea of Zen. Another idea he expressed was that Zen is the Zen is to realize your true nature and to express yourself fully. And true nature is depending on how you understand it, but that. Um, core essence, uh, which includes your heart, or maybe is another word for heart. Uh, when your heart is in alignment, or in in yeah alignment with the core, then that's important. And then you have uh, a lot of support for your heart from below and above in your core. So when you understand or have a sense of your core, then you're living from there. Rather than, you know, do this, don't do that, and the directions, it's coming from inside, and you're, and then, and he said, that's how we understand the precepts. So there's advantages and disadvantages in how different people understand the precepts, but his idea was when you're in alignment with your, with your essence, your core, with your true nature, and you express that, you can't break the precepts. Then he said, you need to be ready when somebody confronts you or brings up something. You might have to say, I'm sorry, I apologize. That, that You're right. That That's not my true heart. Uh, let me try that again. So, But you're offering, you're, rather than trying to get it right enough and correct enough for long enough that it shows that you have your heart in the right place, um, you know, and that, you know, and that you could finally accept and appreciate your heart, it's like, you know, you're... You're aiming to live from your heart, and then, you know, you... And this is also the big emphasis in Soto Zen, of course, that you... Heart is another word we could say in this in this sense for enlightenment. How do you bring your enlightenment to today? And, um, and setting aside what enlightenment would be like, what would you do with it if you had it? <laughs> Let's just say you do. <laughs> and then... And then what what is it your your true heart, your true enlightenment wants to do here today? I notice, Ed, in talking to you, I feel a tremendous warmth and a real sense of connection. And I feel Thank you, sweetheart. I feel yeah, so grateful that in this rollicking conversation <laughs> it's, it's we, lovely to be able to talk to somebody who is going to be so receptive, Tammy. <laughs> I, I feel that way. And you've inspired me to cook for my friends and family, and I'm sure they are going to love that. I've been talking with Edward Espy Brown. He's a Soto Zen Buddhist priest, teacher, and chef. Known as the author of the Tassahara Bread Book, he's written a new book, which sounds true. It's called No Recipe, Cooking as Spiritual Practice. Ed, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tammy. Yeah, for yeah. Your, just the, the raw, rollicking ride. Thank you. Yeah, blessings, love and blessings. It's been wonderful. Thank you. I really do appreciate the, the care and attention you put into preparing and 
and, and listening and receiving. It's wonderful. Great gift to me, and I'm sure to others. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.